Hello and welcome to Searching Inward, a podcast brought to you by Restore Small Groups here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm George Stahl, and today I'm with Scott Reel and Anna Bryant uh, together, both of them, two beautiful people who are teaching us. <laughs> What's so funny about that? You really are beautiful people. Um, I'm not just saying that because you guys don't pay me at all. <laughs> but they are teaching and inspiring us all with what hope and healing can look like as we journey together the path of transformation in healing community. So we're so glad that you joined us today for this episode that we have entitled The Healing Power of Telling Your Story. So uh, let's get started with that. Um, I want to start with you guys. You guys witness to the power of story all the time, sharing your own but also witnessing to others sharing their stories and watching others witness others tell their stories. And, um, you know, uh, telling your story while being witnessed with loving attention by others who care um, is the most powerful medicine on earth. And it's maybe not something that we initially think about that could be helpful on our path. But just as the, the body needs food, I think our soul needs meaning. And so telling our stories them being witnessed to with love and care, it really is transforming. So I would love to start off with you guys sharing how you experience this um, in a small group setting and, and which the value that you see and how it leads to healthy transformation in people's hearts and lives. Well, I'll share. I mean, it's really the heart of our small group process. Um, I always, I'm thinking of so many things, but one of the first things that comes to my mind, I, I'm pretty sure it was Menneth Meyer that said that, uh, or it was Cloud and Towns, but they said it's never the infrastructure that God uses to transform our lives. It's the relationships within the infrastructure that God uses to change our lives. So there's, mm. and what is it about other relationships? I think what makes small groups so powerful, and we talk about it actually in Journey Freedom, is, is universality, which is experiences, gosh, I'm not alone. And I think that so many people are starving and desperate to be known, to tell their story. Does anybody even care about what it was like for me growing? Last night in our group, we were talking about what was it like for you as a small child growing up in this world, in your home, at school, and we heard all kinds of things. And lots of tears are being, you know, and these are people you would look at and say, well, they probably had a perfect childhood. And I don't know if I've met anybody that's had a perfect childhood. And then Thompson says that how we remember our past will also determine what we do in the present. So, so if my brain and how the paradigm I have shaped of what I've come to believe about my story, if I'm isolated with that, even if it's dysfunctional, that's not going to change. But if there's empathetic listeners, people who care and are just being present for me, and that's why we have some pretty strong guidelines about we don't fix anybody in our groups. We don't give advice in our groups, and we use I statements. We are there to just be present and create that sacred space. And so that opportunity to be known, to share a story, it not only transforms a person sharing their story, but it transforms the listener's memories of their own story. So so you see the power of a small group. And we, like, we lack that in our society. Nobody knows anybody, really. And social media is an opportunity to present ourselves, which is where we talk so much about the power of the false self, you know, just hiding in the false self. 
and the risk that is involved. And the last thing I want to share is that it takes incredible courage, incredible courage to expose oneself, to say, this is what happened in my childhood. This is what it's like being me. These are the mistakes I've made. And, and to have people sit there and just say, we love you, we care for you, and we are never, ever going to abandon you. Because that is our greatest need as a human being, is the desire to be loved. And the only way you're ever going to know you're truly loved is if you really know the true story, yeah. the, the true me. And then if that is received and accepted and not rejected, that it, to me that's it verse that says the truth shall set us free. And I've heard every kind of story from people in prison to people who are ministers of large congregations, to doctors, and lawyers, school teachers, bakers, people who check people out of Kroger, and, and you know what? They're all starving for the same thing. Do you care? Do you want to be? We want to be listened to, and and there aren't many places, you know. Well, hopefully we have families and we have friends that we're truly being listened to. But one thing about Restore that's so beautiful is it's it's intentional space. To come and let me ask you just a practical question, and maybe this is for Anna or Scott if you want to jump in too on it. But um, do you think sometimes hearing your story out loud, because often it's it's in our heads and in our hearts, that there's a real practical advantage to verbally giving language to it, where you hear it yourself, that is helpful, um, you know, to to the healing process. It, it, that sounds like a very practical thing, but I often know sometimes when I hear myself. I'm going, oh, wow, I really think that way. Maybe that could change. Or, wow, I didn't realize that I'm thinking that. Is that is that true to what you guys might experience in group? I think so. I think, one, it just um, it gives validation to your story when you say it out loud, that it's not just something in your head. Like if you're confessing something out loud to another human, you're like, yeah, th- this actually is a part of who I am. It's not just uh, thoughts in my head. Um, and then to, you know, say it out loud. And then when you, um, can witness the response, hopefully an empathetic response from the listeners that are with you, it really does transform. Like, you know, I think a lot of people maybe who have been through certain traumas in their lives can tend to minimize those experiences and, and think Mm -hmm. that they aren't that bad and, and maybe not really press into the healing because they're not really acknowledging the depth of the wounding. Um, and when you speak it out loud and you see the response in another person's eyes that, ouch, that was a painful experience you went through, and I'm really sorry for that, then it does open up um, just uh, the path to healing that perhaps you didn't really recognize you needed. It's knowing, I've heard you say this before, Scott, knowing that you were felt. Mm-hmm. Someone heard it and you experienced them witnessing it. And yeah, that's so moving. Well, Scott, something that you say, and uh, I just want you to speak to this, but you talk about what narratives do we tell ourselves after we made mistakes in our lives, like when we are going through painful things. Um, So there is, the before we even share the story with a group, it's probably a narrative that is bouncing around in our head. And um, how do we, you know, how do we begin to see that narrative different as we begin to tell our stories after we made a mistake? What are the things that we need to, what are the things that we should be telling ourselves that are helpful? Well, first of all, it is, it's so instinctive. You know, I I hear it every night I do a group that there's nobody more critical and hard on me than me. You know, this is what everybody, they're always saying and how quickly it's almost instinctive to go there, you know, with, with those narratives that are so deeply ingrained. 
But, you know, again, we're talking here about a neural pathway. I mean, when you have repeatedly had the same statements to yourself that generated from within, your own narratives, and they've been there for your whole life. And, you know, I mean, I've heard horrible things in groups like from 60-year-old people saying, when I was a little boy, my dad told me, you'll never mount to anything. You'll never, you know, or a woman, I had one woman in a group say, her mother told her, this is so terrible, she said, um, the only reason you're here is because I didn't have enough money, you know, to get an abortion. You know, see, hear those horrible things. And then you're looking at a person, how, how have you made it with that in your mind all this time? And then you look at what stuff is said on social media. So the damage of that stuff is deep because once it becomes ingrained, and that and the neural pathway is pretty solid, which it is, um, it, it really comes down to every day taking those thoughts captive. But again, this is where community is important. I'm going to need support. I'm going to need to call somebody. You know what? I just I'm I'm feeling this and I'm thinking this about myself. And this person says, "No, that is not who you are." Remember what we're talking about. We were talking about just again uh, last night the power of affirmation, the power of affirmation, um, and how we all long for it. And you know what affirmation ultimately is, George? To me, it's it's believing that you are worthy of being loved. You are. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do it. It just is inherent in you. you, you know, and, and we live in a society where, and, and even religion has so much dictated, you know, that when you perform a certain way, then we will love you. In the reality, Jesus says the complete opposite of that, you know, that nothing will ever separate you from my love. Nothing. Nothing. And when a person begins to believe that and practice that, and that, that is not an easy task to do, but I need to be prepared. I, I have worked on acronyms of what I'm going to say to myself when I start going down that dark path. When I make a mistake or I get criticized from somebody and then it just starts going and I sink into that, I call it my shadow life, you know, where this is what I really believe about myself. I have to interrupt that and I need to have some kind of process. But the best thing I need is a human connection. Somebody like you, George, somebody like you, Anna, that I call and say, man, I'm really wrestling with this stuff. And you remind me of, no, this is who you are. You're it's so powerful. And you, uh, you guys end the groups with affirmations. Uh, like after telling your story and witnessing to the stories of each other, and I've been in those groups, and there is nothing like the feeling of leaving that last group after everyone in the group has heard your story for weeks, and now they're affirming you. Do I have time to say a real quick story? Yeah, absolutely. The movie Ordinary People. Go and watch that movie and watch how Connie, the, it's who's, the movie is, the, the, the book is features, his, it's his story. He had attempted suicide. His older brother had died in a, in a tragic sailing accident. He drowned. And his mother, just, who's played by Mary Tyler Moore, just cannot accept him. Her favorite son she lost. And the weak one, who everybody thought was weak, was, ends up being a strong one survived. Well, anyway, at the end of the movie, and he's working with a psychiatrist, Dr. Berger, and he's, um, he's really struggling to hold on because he's, he's from a very dysfunctional home, he doesn't have a secure attachment there. And once um, something happens, a friend of his commits suicide, and he's triggered, and he's losing. And he calls Dr. Berger late, like on a Saturday night, and Dr. Berger says, come to my office right now and meet me. And so he meets him in his office, and he's telling him all this stuff. And it gets in the most 
important part of this he's he's holding on and he turns to Dr. Berger, Connie, and with tears he says, are you my friend? And Dr. Berger knows what he's asking at that moment. And I think that's what every human being on this planet asks for sometimes. And Dr. Berger looks him in the eye and says, yes, I am. You can count on it. And every time I watch a scene, I think of Christ, that message, when everything in you says, I, you know, I'm not enough and I can't make it. And there's that one voice that says, I am here for you and I will never, ever abandon you and I'm for you. That's to me, we get that message to people in these groups. And it's not rocket science, but I'm telling you what, it is life transforming. When they look the person in the eye who's had the courage to tell their truth, expose themselves, and we say, and the, and the person's longing, are you still my friend? And we say, you bet I am. And you can count on it. Is there a greater life-changing experience and message than that? That's grace. Today we're talking about the healing power of telling your story and why telling your story can be healing. And we're learning different ways that it's powerful and helpful. Um, it helps us process events. Uh, it helps us stay in touch with ourselves and be able to hear ourselves, what we're thinking, and hear it out loud and have others witness to it. It helps us release negativity. And most importantly, as it pertains to groups, Anna, that you guys do, uh, it helps you know that no one's alone in this. And today we get to practice this. We get to, Anna, well, I guess you get to practice it. <laughs> I get to, lucky um, me. <laughs> Anna wants to share some of her story. She's brand new to Restore. Oh, well, actually, been here several months now, but maybe to some of you listeners, she's brand new. And uh, like all of our lives, she comes with a story. <laughs> and uh, you have a beautiful story and a beautiful heart. And we're so glad you're here doing this work at Restore. But let's go back. Let's go back and um, let's talk a little about your, your childhood and what was your first experience of faith and a little bit about your story in childhood to begin to shape your life. Okay. Where do you want to begin? <laughs> Welcome to me. <laughs> um, so my story, um, I feel like with all of our stories, our stories begin with the stories of our parents, obviously. We are not born in a vacuum, and we are born into a set of circumstances that we have no control over. Um, so I was born, uh, I'm the second child to my parents. Um, they got married very young, and my mom came from an extremely dysfunctional and abusive background. So um, when I was born, she was actually, um, my dad was in the, uh, the service stationed overseas. And so my mom was there. She was pregnant with me and she had my older brother. Um, and they actually were forced to flee the country in the middle of a, a government coup. So it was quite traumatic. Wow. She already was dealing with lots of traumas from her own childhood. Um, they got out safely, returned to California, and I was born shortly after that. So that's how I got my start in the world. Um, and I would say my earliest memory would be uh, when I was about three years old. Uh, after my dad finished his uh, time in the service, he actually went back to school and went to seminary. And so um, I remember that my dad was in Bible school. And so my earliest memory was uh, actually like uh, asking Jesus into my heart. I remember kneeling down and praying, like, God, I want you to come and live inside of me. And just I remember just 
a feeling of joy, um, which is very palpable. And I was I was three years old, and I can remember it with great clarity. Um, so that would be my my earliest memory. Um, there was just a lot of. Um, I'd say, like, my faith was a, a constant in my life growing up. We were in church every Sunday, Wednesday nights. I mean, we were—that was probably the, the bedrock of our family life. But um, my family, of course, was struggling quite a bit because my parents had their own issues, and um, my mom is not um, mentally well. And so from the time— um, that I was real young, I do just remember there being a lot of struggle between my mom and my dad and just um, a lot of discord and um, my mom processing a lot of her childhood trauma um, just with my brother and I. And not intentionally in an abusive way, but I know that she just didn't feel safe with other people and children naturally felt like a safe place for her, and so as she was processing her own childhood trauma and just all of the struggles within her marriage, uh, my brother and I were the recipients of a lot of that uh, just emotional weight as children. And so um, it felt like a lot of the times there just um, wasn't space for me to have problems or for me to take up space because there was already too much trouble. Um, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so your, your mom and dad uh, are conflicted in their own relationship. Yes. Um, and are trying to help themselves, and there just isn't much room for you and your brother to, to have challenge or to have a place to go to express what it is that you're going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know. I remember specifically um, I got – bullied quite a bit as a child. And I mean, I was an awkward kid. And um, I remember like some kids in the neighborhood, they actually like banded together and made a little club, the Anna Haters Club and put up oh little signs in the woods. And I just remember when I found out about that, how crushing it was, but there was nowhere to go with it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, How, a, how, were, how old were you? I was maybe eight. Yeah, I was pretty small. Um, so just, um, I think, uh, just much of my growing up years, uh, were very isolated. I, I felt very much alone. I did not have, um, a strong support network at home. Um, uh, I didn't really fit in socially. Um, I just remember being, this is so sad, but I remember being a kid in elementary school and at recess, there was these giant tires that were like cemented into the playground. I remember just being so alone one day, like I climbed inside the tire and just sobbed all the way through recess because I was like, I don't have any friends. Oh my goodness. And so, yeah, my childhood was, was, I would say, just characterized by being sad and lonely with a lot of adult emotional problems impounded on top of that. Do you, uh, now, what about when you moved into your teen years? Was there, did, did things change ever along the way, like for the good or? Um, I, it, it, that's a, I, well, I will say as a result of, of some intense bullying I received as a, 
a, a child, uh, probably through middle school, I, I was bullied off and on by different groups. And there was also a lot of moving. My parents were trying so hard to work out their marriage, but there was a lot of like separations and then reunifications and then like, we're going to make it work. No, we're calling it quits. No, we're going to try again. And so there wasn't a lot of stability there. Like there was always like, you know, are we going to be a family? Are we not going to be a family? Just a lot of big question marks there. Um, but I would say as a result of just kind of having to stand on my own two feet and figure out how to make things work, I, I learned how to be pleasing as a teenager. Like I learned how to make friends. I learned how to be popular. I learned how to become and make myself into what people wanted to receive to be acceptable. Um, wow. That's so even in your teen years, you're still, there's this gaping part of your heart, just wanting to be loved and, and a part of something. And at this point, you are those healthy ways that you're beginning to build friendships or I would say, um, in, in, in a lot of respects, yes. I, I, I had um, good, healthy friendships with, with some other girls. Some of my friends, some of my girlfriends from high school were still friends to this day, which, you know, I'm grateful for. Um, but I, I did have that gaping, like, longing to be loved and accepted and known. Um, and so I, of course, was looking to members of the opposite sex to try to validate me. And um, so I, in high school, I did get into a, a serious dating relationship. And um, by my senior year, I found myself pregnant and um, unwed and um, shortly after abandoned. <laughs> and so um, that was just a really hard season. Um, thankfully, my parents were supportive in that, and they did all that they could to make sure that I had, um, like, the medical care that I needed and helped me find um, an adoption agency. And so I graduated high school six months pregnant, and a couple months later gave birth to a beautiful baby girl and sent her off to a loving, caring, adoptive family. Um, and then, you know, a year after, went off to college. Um <laughs> and did not receive any counseling or any kind of processing through this major traumatic life event that I had just gone through. I just went off to school and I looked just like everybody else on the outside and I am hemorrhaging on the inside. Now you're moving into young adulthood, coping the best you know how, um, and knowing that something's happening on the inside of you, but not knowing exactly what to do with it, but yet you're resilient. And so you, uh, what begins to happen in your young adult life? Like how, how, did, the, how did these things begin to shape your okay, life yeah. and, and affect you in, in your young adult years? Okay, so that's a great question. Um, so I went off to college, um, and, you know, as I said, faith was always a huge part of who I was and, and the culture of our family. Um, and so growing, this was this was back in the 1990s when, when I had this crisis pregnancy, um, which was kind of at the height of, like, you know, somewhat toxic purity culture that the church was embracing at the time. And so you can imagine af um, 
after getting pregnant, getting caught for doing something that everybody's doing, but you just happen to be like caught in a way that you can't hide it. <laughs> um, so I was really like drowning in shame pretty severely at that point. Um, I went off to college just feeling like, okay, well, I'll get a, a fresh start and nobody's going to know. Um, but inside, I'm still just struggling with that shame of like, I, you know, I have to be a better Christian. I like, I need to prove that I'm good. Um, I got real involved in a, in a campus ministry and, um, just was really going wholeheartedly after my faith and trying to grow. And it was really a great time because I think for the first time in my life, I was surrounded by other people who were, um, my age, like in my peer group and also like-minded who were, you know, committed to their relationship with Christ and growing and, and becoming, um, what God created them to be. But I'm still wrestling with all of this toxic shame about my past and not really having a healthy platform to process any of that. I'm just, you know, trying to think of ways to legitimize myself. And obviously, all I ever really wanted in life was to be a wife and a mom. Like, that's just kind of, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. I just, I, and I have all of this, like, overwhelming love in my heart that I'm like, I, it has to go somewhere. I have to, you know, I have to be able to pour this out somewhere. Um, and so I, um, am involved in this campus ministry. I go away on a summer mission project and I, I meet a, a fella who, um, shows some interest in me. I'm not particularly interested in him, but, um, he's a nice Christian boy and he's the first nice Christian boy that ever paid me any attention. And he pursued me pretty hard um, for like a year afterwards. He is pursuing. Uh, we lived in different states, went to schools on different campuses. But finally, after about a year, I conceded and was like, okay, this, this is what God has for me. And so we started dating long distance. And we dated for long distance for two years. And then um, we got engaged. And as soon as we graduated, we got married and I believed with my whole heart that this was what God wanted for me and that this was going to essentially prove to the world that I'm no longer who I used to be. It was going to be a difference maker. You were finally going to be loved in the way you'd always wanted yes. to be loved and, and share this love that was just abounding in your heart with another human being. Yeah, yeah. That was my hope. And how old were you at that point? I was 23 when I got 23. married. Yeah. Still young. Yeah. <laughs> very young. Yeah. But I, I felt very seasoned. I mean, I was like I a college graduate. I'm way older than my parents were when they got married. And um, we're doing this right. You know, we were committed to, to purity in our dating relationship. And so I just knew he's a Christian. I'm a Christian. We're pursuing God's best. This has to work out. This has to be God's will for me. So then you get married. And I know you have three kids, so you begin <laughs> to have children. But not well, for a long time. It took us... How long did you date before you had children? So we were married for five years. I was ready for kids immediately, mm -hmm. obviously. I, I wanted nothing more than to be a mom, but he just wasn't ready, and he was very um, committed to the idea of being financially sound before we started a family. So for five long years, I waited for him to be ready. And um, so finally, in uh, 2003, we had our first child. I was 28 at the time. So, um, and oh my goodness, she's so perfect. I mean, 
Oh my word, love that girl. Georgia Ann. Georgia Ann. I like that name because <laughs> my name is George. <laughs> yes. And so that was just uh, such a balm to my soul to finally have a vessel to really pour out all my love and attention to. Um, and then just six months later, we had another little surprise on the way, which was my precious, wonderful son, Caleb, um, who I love dearly. Um, and so that was a surprise. Two babies within 14 months. Um, was, after waiting five years. After waiting five mm-hmm. years, I was thriving. I loved nothing more than being a mom. Um, but I, I definitely feel like there was still a huge component missing in, in my in my marriage. There was no closeness or intimacy or connection or, um, you know, I, I was able to pour into my kids, uh, but I wasn't necessarily receiving that within my marriage. Um, so that's where we are. Um, my husband was probably a little, uh, I don't know. He was very surprised each time that I, that I got pregnant, even though it shouldn't have been surprising. But um, so having two babies at one time, I think, was a lot for him. And so, you know, I, I wanted a lot of kids, and he, I think, was a little um, overwhelmed by having two babies at once. And so we kind of put growing our family on hold after that. Um, until about six years later, we had another little surprise and that's my last one. And that's my sweet little Gigi. Um, (laughs) and how old is Gigi right now? She's 12 right now. Yes. (laughs) So yes, my kids are the delight of my life. I love them just more than I can express and God's gift to me for sure. So, um, yes. Um, and so we were living in North Carolina. We had gotten married, um, right out of school. We had lived in North Carolina, uh, through the time all of my kids were born. And then about a year and a half later, Gigi was just a baby still. Um, there was an opportunity for my husband Mm -hmm. to take a job out on the West coast. So we packed up the kids and moved ourselves to Oregon. Um, yeah. And started over. Wow. Um, so we were out there for about five years and, um, th- those were hard years because we were so far away from our support system. Um, and, uh, I was pretty much doing most everything single-handedly, uh, as far as, uh, the parenting goes, as far as just all of the things, uh, it, it was a lot. Um, and then, um, while we were out there, um, we got the really sad news that my only brother, uh, took his life and that was a whole lot to navigate on my own out there. That, that is so overwhelming. It's, it's like, yeah, you, that your journey just, even when you were hoping and good things were happening, it was like, you just kept getting hit with something that reminded you that your soul still was not totally healthy and healed. And you just, you are resilient because here you are today. um, And I know in your most recent past here for the last several years, you've been doing work that is, is helping others. Um, Any more to your, your story that you want to share, but I I would like to, to talk a little bit about how this has led to 
you doing the work that you're doing right now, but any more details? Yeah, well, I will yeah. say that probably that experience of losing my brother, um, it got me to a place in my life where I really was uh, at rock bottom. I was very much alone. Um, I my my parents did not um, want me to come out and help them with any of. Oh, uh, settling of any of my brother's, um, you know, estate or any of that. Um, in the days and the weeks and even the, the months that followed, not once did my husband ask how I was doing with all of that mm-hmm. in, a, in a tragic loss like that. And so I really, um, I was navigating that all by myself, all while I'm trying to um, parent very small children and protect them from just the ugliness of what was happening within our family. Um, but I will say in that low, low, low place in my life where there was not another human showing up for me, God showed up for me in ways that I can't even explain. Mm-hmm. And he was faithful and he was good and he is kind um, and so I'm so grateful for that, um, because I think a lot of people could easily, um, just embrace bitterness because of just the excruciating painfulness of that situation. Um, but I know without a doubt that God was not only there with me, he was literally carrying me through, um, through those days. Um, so that, um, for that, I'm grateful. And I think that has hitting that rock bottom place just brought me to a, an understanding of, um, I can't, um, I can't be all the things I can't do all the things. And that I too need God's grace. Um, and so, yeah, <laughs> um, fast forward another like five ish years, we, uh, we moved here to Nashville, and um, I finally, after just really struggling with feeling very, very alone in my marriage, um, came to the realization that I could continue um, struggling and suffering because that's the Christian thing to do, or I can embrace God's grace and say, you know, my life matters too, and I don't have to keep doing this. And so that is the difficult decision that I have made and am currently walking through, um, but am experiencing so much peace and so much grace through that, that it is um, another way God is just showing up for me every day. So, Anna, you you get to this point where you are trying to care for everyone that's in your orbit. Um, I would imagine your friendships, the world around you, and you get to this point where there's just nothing left. And the realization in that moment is that there's some grace that is present for you and caring for you. And so you awaken to uh, part of what I need in this moment is to allow that grace to care for me. How, how, how does that change, um, you know, the trajectory, the experience of life when you awaken to that? Oh, it changes everything, honestly. I think I just have um, carried the false responsibility of 
just the narrative that you, you have to be an example to people. And so you have to be as much like Christ as you can possibly be to the, to the detriment of your own self. Like the more that you are suffering, the more like Christ you are. And one day it just, it just hit me like, what am I, what am I teaching my children? What example am I showing them of what it means to be a wife or what it means to be a mom, that you're just, you're, you're miserable, that your needs are never met, that you're just like living out each day, waiting for the next, like just waiting for heaven, (laughs) but it's not going to get better until then. And um, I think I just, I had to change that narrative in my head that, you know, we get one life here and we may not do it perfect, but that's what God's grace is for. And that we matter. We matter to God. Our hearts matter to Him. And um, He promises in Scripture that we will have an abundant life. And um, if that is not where we're at, if there are things that are in our power to change, there's grace to change those things. Wow. So how... How is that playing out now in your life? Like you, it's always remarkable to me that it's often people who have gone through some of the most difficult things that they're the ones that turn around and become the healers to other people who are going through those very same things. And I think it's one of the most beautiful things in the world. And you certainly are that kind of of human being. But to your point, you know, if you're not finding care and love for yourself, at some point you don't have anything to to give to the world around you. So you have found the the bounce of that. And here you are now, even with all these, you know, experiences of life that often, honestly, take other people out. Um, somehow you found the resilience and the grace to, to live beyond them. And now here you are living more healthy and giving a gift to the world around you to help other people find that same transformation. So uh, what wisdom or, or what <laughs> experience are you living right now that, uh, you know, could be helpful to us? Uh, because this is a hopeful story. Yeah. Because you can go through these kinds of things right. and survive them and grow yeah, and find a more side. joyful, yeah. meaningful life. So. How have you done it? I know it's God's grace, but what, it is a hundred percent God's in grace. Anna's but I, sauce I will right say now. some of the secret sauce would be find a place where you can be known, and and that has been a huge draw for me uh, here at Restore uh, in doing this work. Is that um, when we talked about it earlier, people are desperate to be known, and I felt like my whole life nobody cared enough to dig in to know the actual real me. And this place is sacred. It's different. Like you can come and you can be fully yourself, like warts, flaws and all, and you'll be loved. You'll be accepted. You will be encouraged. Um, And that is where we heal. When we see like the uh, potential for what we can be, the reality of who we are, but also the potential of what we can become from the reality of where we're at is hugely healing and inspirational. And it's work that I want to do for the rest of my days because it matters. Well, Anna, thank you for the courage to, to share some of these bits of your story. Um, but also thank you for what you do here at Restore. But even above and beyond all of that, thank you for who you are. Um, you really are an inspiration. And 
we hope you as a, a listener has been encouraged by Anna's story uh, here today in this conversation. And Anna and I and Scott want you to know we are all capable of healing and restored hope. And it is how we are all designed. It's a universal, it's, it's universal to our human experience. So one part of healing involves sharing our stories in meaningful community where we're heard and where we're loved and where our stories can sh- take shape for the good, like Anna's, guiding us to well-being and more joy in living. And what we want you to know above all else is that no one should have to go this journey alone. And Restore can help. So it, you can visit us at restoresmallgroups.org to learn more about online and in-person groups. And we just hope that no one's going their journey alone and you could discover what Anna has discovered, grace, but also community to share your story and that it could be worked out and you can find the good in it too. But until next time, friends, take care.